What we're bringing to the picture here today is a unique perspective, which shows the real underlying cause, hmm. which is not just Jewish Zionism. It's actually Christian Zionism utilizing Jewish Zionism as a tool to divide and destroy the Muslim world. That's actually what's been happening for the last yeah. hundred years. Peace be upon you. Palestine is in crisis. We're all seeing the horrific images that are coming out of Gaza and the onslaught of the uh, Israeli military. A lot of people are asking why and how did we get here? Now, this is a political crisis, but it has religious roots. And that's what you're going to get here at Rational Religion. We're going to uncover those roots and we're going to be talking about the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. But before that, how Christian Zionism was actually a major part in what we're seeing today. We're going to be talking about theologically, are Jews the chosen people? What is the status of Muslims and other such issues? So let's begin on the ground in here in mid-November, and this is a fast-moving situation. What has been the news today? So the news today, if we can go to the first slide, please. Um, Israel orders Khan Yunus evacuation in southern Gaza, which is obviously a sucker punch. Um, because Israel was continually saying that they need to evacuate northern Gaza because northern Gaza was where Hamas was embedded. And now they're dropping leaflets on Khan Yunus and the surrounding areas, in particular around Khan Yunus, yeah. telling people to evacuate and go to shelters. Um, when you've got 2 million people in half the area of what was the most densely populated place on Earth. And I think one of those place. leaflets we have on the on the uh, second slide. Um, yes. Uh, yes, we do. So if we can go to the second slide. Um so no one before that there we go so on the right hand side here we have and this is from a um kind of a uh it's an it's a twitter account which showcases the israeli point point of view hmm. so he writes here's the fly calling on civilians in khan yunus to leave for their own safety the pattern of the idf doing all it can to spare civilian lives will continue i mean um pretty shocking second shocking second statement there yeah. given that they've killed about 5000 children wiped out whole families intergenerational families mm. uh, i think they've leveled uh, more than half of all of the residential buildings in gaza uh, so absolutely shocking statement that they're doing all they can to spare civilian lives they think it seems that if you drop leaflets upon mm. people before bombing them it makes it okay yeah. um so this is uh, this is on the left hand side if we get that up please that's a video um from middle east is an interview with Ehad Olmert, the um, Olmert, perhaps, um, the previous uh, prime minister. We haven't yet come to the, even to the heart of this operation. Khan Yunus, which is in the southern part of uh, Gaza Strip, is the real headquarters of Hamas. There they have the leadership, they are hiding, they have the bunkers, they have the command positions, they have the launching uh, pits. And it's interesting you say Khan Yunus is the command center because for the past week we've heard the Shifa hospital was the beating heart of Hamas. And yet we haven't seen uh, the tunnels or the uh, weaponry. So you have seen the weaponry, you haven't seen the leaders. But look, I, I don't know. There are so many fake news. It's now part of life. So everything is spread carelessly. Had you asked me, Two weeks ago, I'd have told you that the center is really in Canyonas. 
Okay, so that's basically the current situation, which is that the the northern part of Gaza was was uh, was targeted heavily. People were told to go to the south, and now the south is being targeted. And <clears throat> for many, this actually this this reminds people of what happened in 1948, which is known as the Nakba, which is essentially what is being called by many scholars, such as uh, Ilan Pape, for instance. He wrote a famous book, The Ethnic, Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. And many uh, of the Israeli new historians follow this, and I think worldwide this has actually become fairly mainstream yeah, and accepted that it was especially with this crisis actually yeah that this was this has always been a, a case a classic case of ethnic cleansing mm. uh, the same things that you could apply to bosnia apply here mm. you know if not um, more strongly in some respects in some respects more strongly so i mean why don't we why don't you introduce these next two clips talking about the nakba and and what they yeah i just want to say very briefly on ehud olmert's uh, view there and you know he's saying that we haven't seen uh, you could see that the journalists just didn't buy Mm. what he was selling mm. um you know she said we haven't seen the weapons of the target goes oh, i haven't seen the weaponry well we've seen a few ak-47s to now yeah um, next to mri machine next to an mri machine um and he says that oh had you told me you know asked me two weeks ago i would have said this was the real center it's like well people were asking the israeli military and the military were saying it was the north yeah so um and he emphasized always oh, that's the real headquarters yeah so now there was a kind of headquarters and now in the north but now there's the real headquarters in the south so so basically what what the, the strong suspicion that comes out of this is that they are trying to make gaza unlivable they are trying to ha create a refugee crisis because well, they already have well Yes, but to to get as many Palestinians out of, out of there as yeah, they want as to be possible. They want to put as much pressure on um, on Egypt to open the Rafah crossing, hmm. basically permanently, hmm. and just get everybody out into Egypt um, because then they'll just lock the door and say you're not ever coming in again. Right. So flashbacks of 1948, and I think we have a clip here. This is from a documentary called Dantura, which is basically a um, interviewing a lot of the soldiers of the what were the Hagana and the Irgun. These are Jewish militias um, trained by the British in uh, late 1947, early 1948, um, who basically uh, Israel had been given 66 percent of the land. Still, six, six, fifty-six percent of the land. They were thirty-three percent of the population. We're going to go through it all. Um, and the Irgun and Haganah and these militias, they wanted more for the Israeli state. Right. So they began with an ethnic cleansing operation to seize more land than that they were allocated by the UN. Hmm. And and Tantura was one particular town right. in which they, um, you know, which they ethnically cleansed, and which is the focus of this particular. Um, I say town, I don't know the size of it, whether it was a village or a town or a region, etc. Yeah. This is this is a very harrowing video. It's these IDF soldiers, what they were IDF soldiers now, old men, but, talking about what they did. But it's it's important to also know before we go to it that historically this has been pretty well accepted now that under Plan Dalit, Plan D, mm. this was, the whole operation was essentially an ethnic, ethnic cleansing operation. Mm. Uh, so so such things weren't exceptions yeah. per se, right? So, so the Dantura massacre took place on 22nd to 23rd of May, 19th. 1948, when around 40 to 200 Palestinian Arab villagers from Tantura, that's the village, were massacred by the IDF Alexandroni Brigade. So if we play this video, we can see exactly what kind of um, horrific the things these individuals did. I'm just going to narrate what's said in this documentary called Tantura. This is Yosef Diamont. He's a Zionist soldier. This was filmed in 2022. He says Tantura was a rich village and had beautiful houses. Its residents lived like Europeans, you know. And the women of the village used to wear nice clothes. For real, it was a village. One of the soldiers raped a 16-year-old girl. He laughs. Do you understand? The events there were horrendous. 
There was a guy with us, he's dead. He's a brutal human being. This is a Zionist soldier. He took the Palestinians and put them in a cage and killed them. They gathered them in something like a cage and put iron wires around them. They gathered all the men, sat them on the ground. And one of the soldiers got the submachine gun and shot them. He changed the cartridge. What do you think? But we were not like that. That person was different and unusual. They imposed a cover-up. There were soldiers who took flamethrowers and ran after the villagers and burned them. It was horrible. And no one is allowed to talk about that. I won't talk about it because it would be a big scandal. I don't want to talk about it. And this is another guy. In the first three or four months, I was a murderer. What does it mean? I took no prisoners. In a battle, if someone raised their hands, I didn't arrest them. That traumatized me. I can't get over it until today. If school kids stood up and raised their hands and saw them that day, I would have killed all of them. How many people have you killed this way? He says, I didn't count. I wouldn't be able to know. And he laughs. I had 250 bullets in my gun, he says laughing. And I shot from it and killed everyone. I can't count. That's obviously harrowing, and that's one village. Right. And as you know, in the ethnic cleansing of Palestine, the uh, Ilan Pape, the uh, he's now professor of history at Exeter, I believe, yeah. um, he used to be a, a, a professor in Israel. He was the lead, one of the leaders, one of the major new historians yeah. um, who went through the IDF archives and showcased how, in actual fact, the IDF had kept extremely meticulous records of their ethnic cleansing. Yeah, I mean, and, and there were there were there was basically countless atrocities. I mean, David Ben Gurion, David Ben Gurion, in his diary, had a section of his diary for rapes and rape reports. Really? Yeah. So I mean, th these things weren't uh, exceptional. Yeah. And if you think about the the injustice of that, you know, this is one of our key messages, which in the Ahmadiyya Muslim community that we make all the time, you know, from our caliphs, which is that if you want security, you have to have peace, and you can't have peace without justice, mm. because when there is injustice upon a people, imposed upon a people, then naturally the natural reaction to that is uh, tension and ultimately rebellion, yeah. and in some cases that can spill out in what we would call today terrorism. So, for instance, with Hamas. You know, there are there are some um, differing reports about exactly what happened on October 7th, but I think it's fairly uncontroversial to say, and I think everyone agrees, which is that Hamas went out there to capture um, as many Israelis as they could, yeah. including civilians. Yeah. So they are uh, capturing civilians for a political purpose, which is, one can say, a terroristic activity. Yeah. Okay done by a resistance force, but there are many, you know, this is, this is what happened, this is unfortunately you know, a natural outcome of injustice in, in our world today when people aren't following uh, true religious morals. Hamas aren't following true religious morals. If they were properly following Islamic morals, then they wouldn't be targeting civilians. And we, we do condemn those actions of theirs. But this is what happens. If you don't have justice, then you don't have peace. Yeah, I mean, we do, we do recognize their actions as unlawful and Islamically, but it's important to uh, point the uh, point your finger in the direction, I think, of the underlying disease, not the symptom. Yeah. And Hamas is a symptom of the underlying problem, which is the occupation, the blockade, the injustice, the cruelty, uh, the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians for 70 years. Mm. Um, and 
we have to ask ourselves, well, what is the actually even before that ethnic cleansing in a sense? And how did the situation of that ethnic cleansing come about? Because what we're here to look about on rational religion is to look not, because there's lots of people who say there's an occupation. There's a lot of people who say it's, it's standard. You know, mm. everybody knows this. This is not some new thing we're telling here on rational religion, that there's an occupation, that there was an ethnic cleansing, mm. right? Academic works have been written upon this. This is textbook stuff, as you've said. What we're bringing to the picture here today is a unique perspective. Mm -hmm. Okay, which is um, shows shows the real underlying cause, mm. which is not just um, Jewish Zionism. Okay, mm. it's actually Christian Zionism utilizing Jewish Zionism as a tool mm. to divide and destroy the Muslim world. That's actually what's been happening for the last yeah. hundred years, um, and this is a great example of one aspect of it. Um, if we look at this table on the left hand side, this is an actual fact: the division of a British mandated Palestine um, mm -hmm. between the Jewish and the a Jewish state and the Arab state. So you have to bear in mind that at this particular point in time, um, the Jews constituted 33% of the population, the Arabs 66%. And as you can see, um, in terms of square kilometers, for example, the Jewish state has got 15,000 square kilometers and the Arab state 11,000. So they got 56% of the land compared to 42% of the land to the Arabs. Right. Um, the Israel in 1967, after the war, yeah. uh, because of the territory it further took, both in 1947 and then again in 1967, went up to 77% of the land. Mm -hmm. um, and then you can see, for example, so that's the one particular example of how both the beginning was unfair in terms of the division of the land. So so the Jews were given a disproportionate amount of the land. So you're yeah. saying they, they had 56%, but they only had a third of the population. Is that right? That's right. Okay. So, and that's what they were given even originally in 1948. And then with nine, well, before 1948, right. in 1947. Yeah. And then with the 1947-48 Nakba, they seized more. And then in 67, they seized more. Right. And then in 73, they seized more. Yeah. And so it's a bit complicated because they gave Egypt back the Sinai Peninsula, for example, and but they've kept on to the Golan Heights, etc. Right. And they gave the West Bank back, but then they've gone on to occupy it. So it's a bit more complex. But here we have on the right-hand side, we have, you know, a simple piece of historical art artifact, which completely puts to bed this notion that Palestine didn't exist pre-47. Mm. Um, I mean, it's called British mandated Palestine. And here's a, an immigration document. This is, we can't really verify the authenticity of this in terms of where it's originally from, but this is going around on Twitter. Mm. And undoubtedly that there are lots and lots, there's, there, we can see the immigration numbers. There's no particular reason to doubt it. There's no particular reason to doubt it. So mm. this is the Department of Migration. It says this individual, Kalman uh, Perk, uh, Perk, has been granted permission to remain in Palestine as an immigrant under the immigration ordinance yeah. of, um, can't see the year. Um, and so this is... I mean, uh, amongst serious people, it's not controversial that there was a, there's, there's a land that's always been known as Palestine there, and even these you know Zionist founders talked about it. I find it extraordinary that um, they talk about an empty land in a land which has been consistently lived in for probably as long as human beings ever well, I mean, around. How, the Levant was one of the earliest cultivated <laughs> regions of the world. Right. To talk about Palestine as not as being an empty land. Yeah. It's like, what are you talking it's, about? It's in the cradle of civilization. And this is one of the kind of propaganda myths, which is that it was a, a people without a land and a land without a people. It's like a match so made in heaven. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that's literally their idea. Yeah. Uh, which is, again, such an injustice to the people that were, that were living there, that were 
that they were buying the land off originally yeah, before they then seized it further. So with this question of migration, if we go to the next slide, please. And what do you show? Because we have just shown that what was given to Israel was disproportionate and unfair. So that was, again, another injustice upon the Palestinian people. Well, well, well this gives a really good explanation of how they even got the injustice in the first place. Right. Okay. So if we look at, this is the, this is the, this is from a really good, um, we can put the link in the description, actually. It's from a really good website, which covers immigration and uh, Palestinian demographic changes. Right. It's a blog. It covers Palestinian demographic changes. And again, this is not controversial. This you can find on most authoritative websites. Right. Um, and it shows the population of uh, Jews to uh, Palestinian Arabs, whether they are Christians or Muslims, or indeed potentially you know, I don't know whether it includes Jews, Pal Jewish Palestinians who are already there. Yeah. Um, but it shows that in 1919, there were 500,000 of the non-Jewish population and 65,000 of the Jewish population. Mm -hmm. By 1948, so we're looking at, you know, 19 to 49, we're looking at a 30-year period. Mm -hmm. You have 1.3 million non-Jews, which is a 2.5 times increase. Right. And you have a population boom of 650,000 of the Jews, yeah. uh, which is a tenfold increase. And the population percentages go from being 87% yeah. um, non-Jews, 13% Jews in 1919 yeah. to 67% non-Jews, 33% Jews. What I particularly want to highlight here is you have a population increase within 30 years of of 20%. Mm. Now, the funny thing is, is that all the people who support uh, Israel are generally towards the right of the political spectrum, and they absolutely oppose immigration to their own countries, usually. Mm. They're like, oh, we've got 8% Muslims here, it's just too much, or 6% mm. Muslims. It's just, you know, can, you, can they imagine within a 30-year period from 1980 to 2010, for example, mm. the population of Britain going from 8, 6% or 8% Muslim, which is what it is currently, I believe, to 20, to 26%. Yeah. I mean, there would be riots in the street. There would be massive, uh, you know, there would be massive riots against Muslims. There would be yeah. killing of Muslims. Mm. Undoubtedly, mm. the far right would have a massive boon in this country mm. if that was to happen. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I think the thing is, is that it's... Um, what I'm trying to point out is the hypocrisy of the situation. That And, and it's a very worthwhile hypocrisy, you know, to, to point out because... And I think there's ultimately a racial issue here. I think even um, in, you know, those who are sort of white supremacists in, for instance, you know, in the Western world, if they have Australians coming in and immigrating, they won't mind that as much. But there is, uh, unfortunately, among such people, uh, an arrogance and a looking down upon people of darker skin. Mm. And thus the Arabs aren't really counted as, as people that it's worth uh, worrying about too much. So, and also there is actually an anti-Semitism here. And I think mm. that's really key to remember, which is that, you know, the, the Jews had been persecuted in Europe. I mean, obviously the Holocaust, but this was happening before the Holocaust, Yeah. right? But the Jews had a long history of being persecuted in Europe. And it's been said by many, many commentators that the, the Europeans and the, and the and people in the new world in America, they didn't want the Jews in their country. No. They didn't want to bring them in no. because they were asking for a homeland. And I think originally Zionist founders, for instance, said, said Uganda yeah. and people had floated which is, America. Which is part of British, it was yeah. a British colony at the yeah. time. But they didn't want them in their lands, yeah. right? But the Arabs, yeah, you can you can have the Arabs. I mean, who, who really cares about the, them? The extraordinary thing is, if we go to the uh, next slide, we have the uh, Balfour Declaration. Um, is so this is uh, the Balfour Declaration, and, and people don't really understand its context at all. This is dear Lord Rothschild. 
Yeah. But that's who it's addressed to. It's addressed to one of the richest, um, well, one of the heads of probably the richest Jewish family in Europe at the time, if mm. not one of the richest. Mm. Who's a Zionist. Who, who is a very prominent Jewish Zionist, right? Yeah. And it's written by Arthur Balfour, who is a very prominent Christian Zionist. Mm. And here he is promising... Um, His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this objective object. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. I should be grateful if you would bring this declaration to the knowledge of the Zionist Federation. Yeah. So obviously he was the go-between. Lord Rothschild was the go-between between the government and the Zionist and was Federation. Was there a quid pro quo here? Uh, yes. Yeah, so there was, this, is, this is thought to have been part of World War I funding. Right. Okay. This is in the middle of World War I. It was 1917. Um, you know, the Tsar of Russia had just experienced a, or was soon to experience, no, I think he'd experienced by now a collapse and the Bolsheviks had taken power. Right. Um, it was the October revolution, wasn't it? So it had happened just recently. Right. In 1917. So, um, and they're fighting Germany and funds are always low. Okay? Yeah. So this was a quid pro quo of weapons for land. Right. And the extraordinary thing about it is, is an actual fact that the British didn't own Palestine. <laughs> Hmm. I mean, I mean, the Ottomans hadn't collapsed yet. The Ottomans hadn't collapsed yet. I That's mean, so true. I didn't think of that. It's it's extraordinary because they're promising a land that they don't own. Well, I think they saw the writing on the wall and they assu- and they assumed correctly that they would come in control of it. And actually, if you read the history uh, of the post World War One, you know, after the Balfour Declaration up up into the Nakba, yeah, it's uh, in in large part, especially the Nakba itself, is in large part uh, um, a history of negligence by the British and by the British troops. There. I don't think it is. I don't think it's negligence. I mean, I th- I've read Israel and Pape's book. It's quite clear they turned. Oh, I see. What you mean. Like, it's quite clear they turned a blind eye. They yeah, trained yeah. the Irgun and the Haganah. Hmm. Okay, they they trained the Irgun and the Haganah. So, so the Israeli militias at that time were moral much, negligence. Well, much. Let's say they were much stronger. No, it's quite well established. It's not. Well, I don't understand what you mean by moral negligence. It's, it's it's that they had a duty to protect the Palestinian people. That was their duty there. Yeah, they they did, but it's quite clear that, that they, they made no effort yeah, yeah. whatsoever to protect the Palestinian population. Yeah. Yeah. And they probably, and in all likelihood, they knew that this was going to happen, and they let it happen. Hmm. Uh, and certainly, we can. What we can say is that once it happened, they didn't take anybody to task for it. Yeah, did they? No. Right. So um, this is. Th- so I just want to emphasize this point. You had between 1913, uh, 1919, and 1948, 49. You have a population shift of 20% migration into a country hmm. from Europe. So that was the, that was the, that was the, what the British did. Yeah. Okay. Because that was between 1919 when they got British mandated Palestine hmm. all the way to 1949 when you had the two states, two states supposedly set up. Yeah. So that was the exact period of British mandated Palestine, right? Yeah. And they deliberately art- artificially inflated the population of Jewish people in the country from 13% to 33% so that they could jump over the fence and give them more than 50% of the land so that they could then grab as much land as possible. Okay. This was a series of leaps. Hmm. Had they gone in 1949... Are you talking about the Zionists here or the British? I'm talking about both. And I think that's the point we're making, isn't right. it? 
that in actual fact, the British utilized Jewish Zionist that aspirations to create a state which would be their proxy in the region. Right. That's the fundamental point here, okay, which is that they wanted a proxy in the region which would be filled by Europeans, hmm. dominated by Europeans, Jewish Europeans, but Europeans yeah. who could act in on behalf of European interests. Yeah. Okay. And they needed that because at the end of the day, you look at the map, the place is filled with Muslim countries. Hmm. Breaking into that ain't that easy. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and Islam is an ex even with their decadent moral condition. I think, you know, the Muslims were still a powerful force yeah. then. Um, and so I think they needed to get the numbers up. Had they tried to get the Jews to seize, you know, how could they have given 66% of the land when the population was 10% or yeah. 15% or even 20%? Yeah. They had to get up to something reasonably close to 33 to 40%. Yeah. To even be able to give them more than 50% of the land in the first place. And is there a degree, is there a degree of Palestinian complicity in that in that leap? I think there is. Mm. Because in places they were selling their land throughout the 1919 to 1949. Yeah. Uh, to 1947. Um, and, and, and there is also a degree of uh, lack of intelligence, one might say. Yeah you know, a kind of laissez-faire attitude that beset the Palestinians during the time of British-mandated Palestine, whereby they thought that they would be, they thought that they were strong, they thought they were in the majority, they thought that they that this could never happen. And they were negligent. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. But it's almost, you know, the Islamic... It's the crime of negligence. It's not the crime of taking somebody else's land, which is actually what happened on the other side. Well, absolutely. I mean, there's no moral equivalence whatsoever. And yeah. it doesn't mean that they deserve what happened to them. No, absolutely It not. just shows that, unfortunately, the Muslim world was in a position where it was quite weak in the terms of their political vision, in terms of their, their education, in terms of their understanding of the West. Yeah. And it's it's a symptom of the, of the wider malaise which had beset the Muslim world and caused their massive decline. I mean, this is when the Ottomans were had, had basically completely faded. And actually, what happened here was essentially what happened over the previous three, four centuries, which is that the West infiltrated, they did in intelligent ways. They did it often with money, with political acumen uh, and organizations, and they slowly destroyed Muslim societies and yes. they slowly destroyed Muslim power. Yeah. So it's crying shame that this happened to the Palestinians yeah. and that this was, uh, that they didn't unite and and, uh, and and stop it when the when it was at a, at a, at a seed, uh, rather now when it actually grew into, a, into what it is, uh, what it became in 1948, then it was essentially too late in a way. So yeah. the Jewish armies were very, very strong, yeah. much stronger than the Jordanians or, you know, yeah. the Syrians, etc. Yeah. So what we're coming to then, what we well, what we have already arrived at is that there was this confluence of interest between the uh, non-Jewish Western powers and the Zionists. The non-Jewish Western powers, i.e. the Christians, what they wanted was the Jews out of their hair. They didn't want them in their countries. Yeah, go have that. Go have go have your land. We'll give it to the to the, the brown Arab people. Mm. You know, have their land. That's fine. We'll support you. We'll turn a blind eye to your crimes. Mm. We will then have people that we can talk to, people that we can get along with, and they will act. Um, they will act on behalf of our interests in the region. Mm. And at the same time, the Zionists get their land. They get their land of Palestine, which they say is theirs, which was biblically promised to them, which we're going to cover later. Mm. So that's where we are. But the question which we haven't addressed yet is why 
do Christians want this? Because we, we know that we know the geopolitical aspects of this. Yeah, it's useful for Western powers to have a yeah. land, the unsinkable aircraft carriers, as it was later called. Yeah, by yeah. General Alexander Haig. I just looked that up. Right. He described it as the largest American aircraft carrier in the world that cannot be sunk. Right. So it's so it's an out it's a it's, it's an outpost, outpost of uh, of regional power geopolitically. But especially in the ni- early nineteenth century, we're talking about fairly, still fairly religious people, many of them. Right. Yeah. And and Christian Zionism is a thing. So what is Christian Zionism? Talk, talk to us about that. So Christian Zionism and. And I, I want a, uh, if we could play the next video, actually, just go to the next slide and then we'll talk about it off the back of that. Right. Israel should make the Gaza Strip a parking lot by this time next week. Destroy the whole thing. And anybody that's going to support this Hamas nonsense. Listen, Joe Biden ought to be tried for treason. You understand that? Now, I get it. I get it. I get it. He... Obama's the real president behind him anyhow. And so he's the one that ought to be tried for treason. It's the black man's fault, really. Yeah. So I, I hope Netanyahu's a leader and he just mows the whole thing down by this time next week. If you think all this open border stuff is not an opportunity for a bunch of Hamas sleeper cells to come into this nation right now and start killing innocent men, women, and children, you have lost your mind. I'm sick of all these Christians saying we ought to have peace with Islam. Islam is a satanic death cult and they would cut your head off before I said amen in this sermon if they had a chance to. The Muslim religion hates Jewish people to the core of who they are. What they ought to do is evacuate up there on the hill and get a great big missile and blow that wicked dome of the rock plumb off of the spot where it's standing right now so we can get that third temple rebuilt and usher in the coming of Jesus. So what's your immediate reaction to that? I mean, so many contradictions and things to say. Hmm. I mean, the, the, it's, if it wasn't tragic, it would be funny. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the thing that kind of strikes me first is he pivots so fast. Well, a few, few things. Firstly, he's got a bunch of kids in the background. Yeah. While he's talking about, you know, destroying, killing millions. Yeah. And then nodding away. Yeah. So this shows. He he was one of them when he was young. Well, he was one of them probably. Exactly. Absolutely. Um, they are nodding away the kids. So he's obviously indoctrinating the next generation with this kind of hateful rhetoric. Hmm. And he is, what he's saying there is that on the one hand that we have to destroy Hamas, we have to destroy all the Palestinians, wipe it all out, turn it into a parking lot. And the reason he immediately pivots into is because Islam is a hateful religion. And the, the, well, obviously there's an inherent contradiction there, but actually and then at the end, he talks about how we need to usher in the coming of Jesus through the destruction of the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Well, he says, let's, let, wipe, let's wipe out the Dome of the Rock. The Dome of the Rock, the Al-Aqsa Complex, and build the third temple to usher in the coming of Jesus. Now, those two things are fundamentally uh, contradictions. Mm. On the one hand, he accuses Islam of being a hateful religion. And on the other hand, he wants to usher in the coming of Jesus. The question is, why does he want to usher in the coming of Jesus? He wants, well, perhaps you can tell us, or do you want me to crack? Yeah, why don't you go? So, I mean, he wants to usher in the coming of Jesus because he wants to wipe out the Jews. Yeah. Because <laughs> according to his belief, mm. when Jesus comes, the rapture will occur because in their belief, Jesus showed the uh, qualities of softness, gentleness, leniency, mercy in his first coming. But on his second coming, he would demonstrate the attributes of wrath of punishment, of judgment. Mm. And so they believe that Jesus will come and he'll give all the Jews a an option, you know? 
uh, my way or the highway. Mm. Um, accept Jesus as your savior and Lord, or you will be put to death and thrown in hell. Mm. So he, he, it's a strange thing because he supports such a perverse thing. He supports the Jews being in Israel so that Jesus can come so that Jesus can wipe out the Jews. Right. So let me just get this straight. What you're saying then is that Christians like this gentleman, this is a particular strain of evangelical Christians. This obviously isn't all Christians and certainly not all, you know, American Christians, but it is a strain it, and, and people who sh follow this ideology are in positions of power in the American government and always have been. So they want the Jews in Israel because they think that that will lead to the destruction of the Al-Aqsa Mosque and then the third temple being built on those premises. And that will lead, you know, that will be the attractor and Jesus is going to fly out of heaven as they believe and he's going to come down and then basically all the disbelievers, including the Jews, probably not going to believe, they didn't believe the first time Jesus came, you know, those who don't believe in the second time, they're all going to be killed, as well as the Muslims and the rest of the world, okay? Mm. So, I mean, this is, and, and this idea of the, of the third temple follows from the second temple, which was destroyed after Jesus came the first time, if you will, yeah. um, in the sort of Ju the Jewish Roman wars was around uh, 70 CE, I think, right? Mm. So they want to, this is why the Christians want that. So it's, again, deeply anti-Semitic. If you want to throw around labels of hate, the, you know, these white Christians in America who have supported this, and they've done it in, in the UK, obviously, with, uh, with Lord Balfour, they want to get the Jews over to Palestine so they can get them out of their hair and so that can, they can eventually precipitate their own death. Mm, exactly. That's I mean, exactly this right. is, I mean, this is, this is, this is pure racism actually. Yeah. Right. It and, and it's such a, it's so clearly a kind of 19th century racist way of thinking. These, the, you know, Zionism, Christian Zionism and Jewish Zionism came out of that milieu, the same milieu, which ultimately ended up in Nazi Germany in a lot of the crimes of the, um, of that era, of the, the racist crimes of that era. Mm. It was a kind of ethno, let's create an ethno state. Mm. Let's segregate races. Mm. Um, one race is supreme and you have the religious tinge of, and ultimately this will lead to the rapture. So, I mean, it's such a, it's, it's a, it's a bit of a mess of ideas, but none of them are good. <laughs> the funny thing is it originated in the 19th century because all of their prophecies stated the Messiah would come in the 19th century. Hmm. So that's, people have to understand the 19th century, what the 19th century felt like. Yeah. People in the 20th century don't really understand. The 20th century had an industrial feel. It was about the growth. It was about war. It was about um, the creation of new economic systems. The 19th century was the growth of religious movements. Mm. It was a buzz with um, the the fervor of religious communities saying that the second coming is now. Yeah. It's now, it's now, it's going to happen. All of the Bible prophecies tell us it's going to happen now. And they were right. And they were right. <laughs> they were completely <laughs> and 100% correct because the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community who was that second coming of the Messiah, the Imam Mahdi, mm. he came, was born in 1835. He died in 1908. His name was Mirza Ghulam Ahmed. Yeah. But these people were expecting in their vision, they were expecting a, a one picture and they, they got another picture. Yeah. Just like the Jews were expecting uh, at the time of Jesus, they were expecting a warlike Messiah yeah. to come and liberate them from the yoke of Roman rule. And instead they got a person who came and said, turn the other cheek. Yeah. So they rejected him because they said this person doesn't fit yeah. our preconceived picture. So this was the age of the second coming. Yeah. And this is often called the latter days, right? Yes. In religious terminology. I think we have on slide 10, a few Quranic verses, if we can go to them, because they talk about a prophecy 
um, of the latter day. So if you look at the bottom one, chapter 17, verse 105, this is in the Quran. And after him, we said to the children of Israel, dwell ye in the land. And when the time of the promise of the latter day comes, we shall bring you together out of various peoples, right? Mm. And then in chapter 21, which is the one above, it says, and we've already written in the book of David after the exhortation that my righteous servants shall inherit the land. Mm. So um, chapter 17 does talk about the children of Israel being brought out together. Yeah. Yeah. as a sign. So does this mean that the creation of Israel, therefore, is condoned in the way that it was? That the creation of Israel in the way that it was is condoned thereby? No, I think the promise was, this isn't even saying that the nature of how it will be brought about. Mm. God here is simply saying to dwell in the land. Mm. It's, a strange, it's a strange verse in many ways, because if you, if you look at it carefully, you know, after, and after him, we said to the children of Israel, I believe that refers to Hazrat Musa, Moses, hmm. after his death, we said to the children of Israel, dwell ye in the land, the promised land, hmm. right? So they entered into the promised land, uh, into Canaan. And when the time of the promise of the latter day comes, comes we'll bring you together. Hmm. So the implied prophecy there is that they would be dispersed. Right. So the Quran often does this. It takes the first statement and then it will imply a second position hmm. and then talk about it from a third position looking backwards. Right. So it says, dwell here. Hmm. And in the latter days, we'll bring you together here. Yeah. Which means, No, it doesn't say here. It says we will bring you together. We'll bring you together. Right. It doesn't even say here. We'll bring you together. So obviously, if you're all here, the person receiving that message would be like, well, but we're all here. How are we going to be brought back together here? Yeah. But that, that means we must not be here at that time. And how is that fulfilled? There's a dual prophecy. Because they rejected, well, it, it's fulfilled in, it's an, it's an interesting question, how is it fulfilled? In terms of the dispersion in terms of the of, tribes of Israel. Yeah, so the, the dispersion of the tribes of Israel happened. Um, people often think it was because Emperor Titus, uh, after Jesus' coming, killed Jews and exiled them from Jerusalem hmm. and from Judea, and that's not true. Hmm. So he killed a whole load of Jews. That's hmm. absolutely true. I think 300,000, uh, according to contemporary historians at the time. Um, but there remained a very sizable Jewish population in Judea. Hmm. Okay. And eventually over time, they accepted Islam when Islam spread to the land. Right. We can talk about that. And prior to that, the tribes of Israel had also been dispersed because they'd been taken into captivity that's by Nebuchadnezzar. That was, but yeah, that's exactly what I was getting to, which is that that was actually the primary dispersal. Right, right. Which is that Israel... Sorry, I ever doubted you. That's fine. Um, <laughs> I, was trying, I was going through what the false narrative was to get to the true <laughs> narrative. And the false narrative is that Titus exiled. They became exiled from the land forever. It's not yeah. true. I'm going to go through that uh, perhaps in a subsequent video or perhaps later in this discussion. Um, but in actual fact, it was that the main dispersal occurred with the Babylonians. Hmm. So there were two tr two kingdoms. There was a northern kingdom of Israel hmm. and there was a southern kingdom southern kingdom of Judea. Right. And Judea was of two tribes, one or two tribes, the, tr the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. And the top the, the, the tribe of Israel, the kingdom of Israel was 10 tribes. Right. And which was much more powerful. Mm. Okay. And that's why the, the Jews, when they've come back to what's now called Israel, didn't want to call it Judah. They wanted to call, they wanted to call it Israel. <laughs> Even though they're not actually descendants of Israel. Yeah. They're not from the kingdom of Israel. The kingdom of Israel was then uh, enslaved by the Babylonian King, King Nebuchadnezzar. And it says in the Bible that they were taken off to the east of the east. It says mm. the east of the east. It's not at east, it's east of the east. And um, we know that then Cyrus the Great, the Iranian, mm. ah, you see, um, he in actual fact freed the 10 tribes from Babylon's, Babylon's um, 
yoke. Right. Um, and they became dispersed over Nepal, India, Kashmir, Afghanistan, Iran. Right. Okay. And so that all of those peoples across that whole region, they have the, they're the descendants of the Bani Israel, especially the Kashmiris, especially the Afghanis. And the Jewish remnant that existed at the time of um, Jesus, peace be upon him. Jesus, peace be upon him. They only were from two of the tri- 12 tribes. Right. So all of the Jews who exist today. Yeah. Who are known as Jews. Who yeah. are known as Jews are not from the kingdom of Israel. Yeah. And if they are anything, they are from the tribes of Benjamin and Judah. Yeah. And for the vast majority of them, as we shall see in a few of the videos, um, they in actual fact aren't even the closest descendants of the ancient Israelites. Yeah, there are many the European converts. There are European they're, converts. They're like to skin. So, so but this, this verse does talk about a regathering, right? So does this then imply that the what happened with Israel was therefore divinely commissioned and divinely endorsed? No, I don't think it was. I, I think it simply means that this is a promise of, of God. But in a way, what happened is, is that the Jews actually took it upon, upon themselves to align themselves with the Yajuj and Majuj, with Gog and Magog, hmm. which are the Western powers yeah. who deal with fire, which is what Gog and Magog means. It means the, the nations of fire, the Ajij. Yeah. Um, and they sought their support to be resettled there. Whereas had they trusted in God, then God would have brought them back at this time anyway. And how would he have brought them back? Well, I, I would argue in actual fact that, a, you know, he would have brought them back as when Ahmadiyyat, the true Islam becomes established in the mm. land, it would permit people of all faith to in actual fact uh, settle in the land. But they chose to take it into their own hands to enact the prophecy or fulfill the prophecy yeah. through force, through violence and through bloodshed. And there is actually, people often focus on this particular prophecy and they talk about, oh, that God will bring them back and therefore it's justified. But they don't look at the well, other... Well, I mean, this is a Quranic prophecy, so but, this is a Quran- but, but pe- critics of Islam and the Muslim position yes. will say, this is in your own book. Yes, absolutely. Right? That, that the Jews are going to come back. So how can you be, be against Israel? Because there are two... We're not against Israel, firstly. Yeah. Right, we're against injustice. But the, the, the other de- decree here that's given in the Quran is in chapter 21, which is that we have written already in the book of David after the exhortation that my righteous servants shall inherit the land. Hmm. Now, it's, a, it's significant, therefore, that neither the Jews nor the, nor the Palestinian Muslims, nor the Muslim have the land anymore. Hmm. They're both fighting over it. They hmm. have parts of the land each, hmm. right? And that's a signal to from God to both nations that they have departed from the ways of righteousness. Hmm. And it's very interesting, I find, that um, 40 years after Mirza Ghulam Ahmed died in 1908, mm-hmm. the state of Israel-Palestine was divided in 1948. And similarly, just as uh, the Bar Kokhba revolt uh, happened 40 years after the crucifixion of Jesus, happened in 70 AD, approximately yeah. 73 AD. So the two timelines parallel each other perfectly. Yeah. And what's happening to the Muslims has already happened to the Jews in the past. Right. So let's just quickly summarize this. People accuse Muslims of being hypocritical because this incredible prophecy, because in one way or the other, the prophecy was fulfilled. Yeah, uh, it is. It is a stunning prophecy. It's a stunning prophecy that the children of Israel, people who uh, you know ascribe themselves... It's a dual prophecy where one, you're going to be dispersed. Yeah. And secondly, at a particular time in the latter days, which is marked by the coming of the Messiah, yeah. you will be brought back. Well, I mean, at the time of the revelation, the, the dispersal already happened, right? The critic would say, but the critic would have to accept. No, uh, the this dispersal has been... hadn't. Oh, yes, at the time of the Prophet Muhammad. Yeah. Yes. But the the fact that it was fulfilled in one way or the other is a stunning proof yeah. of the truth of of the Holy Quran, right? Yeah, and there, yes, yeah, but, yeah. but this is this does not mean that the way that they did it was correct. They took it into their own hands and did it via injustice. Yeah, and that makes them um, 
worthy of some form of divine punishment if God so pleases in this life or the next. You know, we don't know. All but, injustice will be paid for. Yeah. So unless unless forgiveness is given, no. right? So that's this prophecy. And the second one talks about that the righteous servant shall inherit the, the land. And this in a way is, is, a, is a message to, to Muslims because, you know, there is a fundamental question is how do we resolve this issue? Yeah. And the um, answer is given here. And that doesn't mean that the people there are deserving of punishment. Not you know, all. that doesn't mean that they aren't uh, viewed by by uh, by God uh, in their in their deaths as um, you know as as people who have been uh, they're martyrs, the people who are killed civilians, they're yeah. martyrs, and have been dealt a huge injustice, and they'd be dealt a huge injustice at the end right. of the day. But but how can we not say that turning towards God and turning towards righteousness would not bring you the favor of God? Yeah, would not give you the protection of God. Yeah. So any Muslim out there who is saying, how do we resolve this situation? It's fundamentally has to recognize that Palestine and the Holy Land has always been a weather vane yeah, that's for a great divine fa favor or disfavor, yeah. right? Yeah. When the Jews rejected Jesus, peace be upon him, quite soon after that, that land was taken away from them yeah. and there were wars and they became the victim of Roman oppression, yeah. right? And a similar thing is happening here. And when the Muslims established themselves and were righteous, they were yeah. given the land. And they were given the land, yeah. In the time of the Caliph Omar. And the yeah. Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said that when national punishments come, they come to the nation. So we can understand this as being the Ummah, not just Palestine, but the whole of the Muslim world. But individuals are judged according to their own deeds. Absolutely. So it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that it's for every individual, you know, poor Palestinian or Iraqi or whoever, that they are that they are being personally punished for their own Absolutely things. Not. But these are signs. In fact, these are means of forgiveness for these them are means and, of forgiveness. and entering into paradise. Yeah, but um, these are signs that something has gone awry. Yeah. That something has gone awry. And righteousness, the essence of righteousness has to be following your prophet. Yes. following the prophet and the prophet of the Muslims is the prophet Muhammad peace be upon him and what did he tell us he says that when the Imam Mahdi comes give him my salam yes it means that he will not be generally greeted with peace yes <laughs> it, it, well, it, well it means that they, it, it, that's absolutely right and one thing that you know the, the, the Jews in Israel the religious Jews get wrong hmm. and which the Christian Zionists here like this fanatic get wrong as well yeah is that they think that they can force God's hand hmm Right? So this is really interesting because here in the Quranic verse it says, after him we said to the children of Israel, dwell ye in the land and when the time of the promise of the latter day comes, we shall bring you together out of various peoples, right? Yeah. So in other words, it is a sign yeah. of the time of the latter days, which is to be marked by the coming of the Messiah, Yeah. right? What that means is for something to be a sign, it has to occur after the coming. Contemporaneous or after. Contemporaneous or after, as in after his coming. He's come yeah, and then yeah, it happens in yeah, his yeah. lifetime or it happens after his death. It has to happen during or after the lifetime of a claimant hmm. to that office. Hmm. And that's something we see in all of the major religious figures of world history. Hmm. And the reason is because a sign is meant to point a person in the direction of the truthful one. Hmm. Now, if a sign occurs yeah. and then the truth of one is to come afterwards, then anybody can stand up and say, oh, that was for me. Yeah. That sign is my, it testifies to my truth. In which case the sign doesn't clarify who is the truthful one. It in actual fact obfuscates and it um, removes the truth of who is, who is in actual fact the truthful one. I find it interesting you said testify there because when you give testimony in court, you're giving testimony about something that has already happened. Yeah. When you bear witness, you bear witness to something that you've seen. So the event has to have happened. That's your central point, isn't it? Yeah, but the Christian Zionists, they believe that if they can just get the land of Israel established, destroy the mosque, establish the third temple, then God will be like, right, they're ready for me. I've got to get up. <laughs> Better get down there, right? And, and do you know who that reminds me of? 
Uh, yeah, uh, go for it. Al-Baghdadi and ISIS. Yeah, it does. This is essentially the ISIS philosophy, yeah. which is that, well, we need to create the Islamic State yes. because they follow what are many of them false hadith about an Islamic State being established by the Mahdi. But they're saying, well, you know, apparently he's not coming, so we need to create it, and we're gonna we're gonna commit all kinds of injustices and bloodshed, and we're gonna try and establish our state, and then the Mahdi will come and he will lead us, and then we'll have we'll take over the world. So it's basically the, the Muslim rapture, yeah, if you will. That's right? exactly right. So the, the Muslims, the Jews, and the Christians, and by the the Muslims we mean the non Ahmadiyya Muslims, mm. right? And the Jews and the Christians are all making the same mistake about the about the second coming. Yeah. And isn't that interesting that this is informing? This is shaping geopolitics yeah. because the Christians want the Jews to be there so that they can then uh, basically destroy themselves. Yeah. The Dome of the Rock can be, can be destroyed. The third temple is created. Jesus comes down. The Jews are killed. Yeah. The Jews are still waiting for their first Messiah. I know. Right? They're still waiting. Well, they're thinking, well, we better make this Zion. We'd better make our state. And then the Messiah is going to come down. And finally, so that Jesus gentleman who said, uh, I have not, you know, my kingdom is spiritual. We're going to finally get our physical kingdom. You know, finally going to get this warrior we've been waiting for. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And and the Muslims have the same. Al-Baghdadi and, and the ISIS lot were saying, well, we need to create this and then well, the they're an extreme come down. form. They're an extreme form of a belief which is prevalent amongst the Muslim community, hmm. which is that when the Messiah comes, he will give one of two options to the disbelievers, death or Islam. Yeah. Convert or die, which is exactly Convert what the Christians die, believe about exactly Jesus. exactly the Christians believe about Jesus. And exactly. there's a reason because the, the, the Christian, Christian belief came into the Muslims. Yeah. It's not a Muslim belief. It's a right. Christian belief. So... So it's remarkable. This whole thing is, is has a religious basis. It's a political crisis, and only but it has a religious basis. And only Ahmadis can answer the question yeah. as to what the real answer is. And what is that? Which is that the, well, Messiah... the answer of Jesus, actually. Sorry? It was the answer of Jesus first about what he said, you know. That, Go for it. Well, that, I can't that, read your mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's just that you know, when, they, when they said to him, you know, aren't you supposed to deliver us from the Romans? Yes, yes, And he yes. said, give, give, give unto God his due and give unto Caesar that, give unto God that which is God's and that, and give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Yeah. He says that my kingdom is not a, is a, is not a physical kingdom, not a material kingdom, but the kingdom of heaven is a spiritual kingdom. It's a kingdom of hearts yeah. who have turned towards God. Yeah. Right? So the Jews were expecting uh, the, 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 the bloody Messiah and the spiritual Messiah came to them. And today the Muslims have the same issue, don't they? Yeah, they're, they're expecting a bloodthirsty warrior as well. Hmm. And again, they only got sent a spiritual king. Yeah. Uh, and Khilafat Caliphate was established after him. Okay, so why don't we then have a look at what the second Khalifa of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community said about why the Christians want the Jews in Palestine and who the ultimate targets are. So uh, why don't you take it away? Sure. It says, uh, this is in chapter 38, verse 22 of the Quran. Um, where an event happens in David's life. So it says, And has the story of the disputants reached thee when they climbed over the wall of his chamber? When they entered in upon David and he was afraid of them. So two people came who had a dispute with one another that they wanted the prophet David to resolve. Peace be on him. They said, Fear not, we are two disputants. One of us has transgressed against the other, so judge between us with justice and deviate not from the right course and guide us to the right way. Mm. This is my brother. He has 99 ewes, okay? And I have only one ewe. Yet he says, give it to me. And he has been overbearing to me in his address. David said, surely he has wronged thee in demanding thy ewe to add to his own ewes. And certainly many partners transgress against one another except those who believe in God and do good works, and these are but few. And David perceived that we had tried him, so he asked forgiveness of his Lord, and he fell down bowing in worship and turned to him. Hmm. So we forgave him that, and indeed he had a position of nearness with us and an excellent retreat. 
Then we said to him, O David, we have made thee a representative, a Khalifa in the earth. So judge between men with justice and follow not vain desire, lest it should lead thee astray from the way of Allah. Surely those who go astray from the way of Allah will have a severe punishment because they forgot the day of reckoning. Right, so those verses are actually deeply relevant to this next passage from the Zen Khalifa of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. And this is something he wrote in 1945. He said, these verses were revealed to me while I was offering my prayers yesterday. And I was told that they contain a prophecy about the present age. In reality, the kingdom of the Jews was established through prophet David, peace be upon him. This is why allegorical terms such as the throne of David and the kingdom of David are in fashion. Then it is also mentioned that Jesus, peace be upon him, will sit on the throne of, da of David, peace be upon him. The Holy Quran mentions a prophecy in these verses about the latter days, which is allegorical as well as a vision. Here, God Almighty revealed that the descendants of David, peace be upon him, or the followers of David, who include the Jews and the Christians, would control over 99% of the world, while only 1% will remain in the hands of the followers of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. However, these people will still create mischief to try and gain possession of the remaining 1%. Europeans use the term mandate to describe all those countries, all those countries which they acquired after the last war. Mandate means security, guarantee or responsibility. And today this term is used for Palestine. Hence, these verses state that the Jews and Christians will demand the land of Palestine from the Muslims. Therefore, President Truman is sending telegrams that Jews should be given a homeland in Palestine. He controls a country that is 5.1 million square miles in area, but he will not allow Jews to settle in his homeland. The area of Palestine is 24 to 25,000 square miles, or even if one assumes it is 50,000 square miles, then the ratio is 99 to 1. And it is in this 1% where they are pushing to settle the Jews. They feel no shame in making these demands, and no one in the world is asking them why when America owns 99% more land, when Australia owns 99% more land, or when the British who, who hold 99% more land in their colonies, none of them are, are ready to house the Jews, and they are asking those who control a tiny 1% to settle the Jews in their homeland. Yeah, and I think it's not just a question of settling Jews in their homeland, because as we've already seen in 1919, mm. there was 13% Jewish Jewish community within Israel, yeah. the land of Israel, which I mean, if you consider there's, you know, 10% of French are Muslims approximately. Mm. Um, so which is considered a high minority population in France. Mm. There are already more Jews in Israel at the time in, yeah. in, in that area. So it, the issue is of seizure of land by force, yeah. ethnic cleansing, displacement of people. Mm. And this is an actual fact this uh, point that is made in the prophecy of Hazrat Dawood of David, mm. where he says, he, for, he is asking me to give it to me by force, mm. right? And he, and, uh, you know, he, says, he says, give it to me, and he is being overbearing to me in his dress. Yeah. Okay? So it's not simply that, oh, why can't the Jews, this is not the second Khalifa's view, that, oh, the, why can't the Jews be just settled elsewhere? Yeah. As if he's averse to Jews being in the Holy Land. It's that... It's that they want to do it by force hmm. uh, and, and through it, they want to, in actual fact, create a division within the Muslim community and weaken the Muslim community hmm. by creating a proxy state in the region, which should act on behalf of European interests to keep Islam divided, to keep the Muslim world divided. And that's actually what, um, how the US and the UK have used Israel yeah. uh, and how Israel has, 
in a way, utilize the US and UK and try to influence them also towards pushing for policies which and invasions of wars. I mean, it's it's an open secret that um, Netanyahu was highly uh, supportive of a lot of the most aggressive US foreign policy um, yeah. you know, mistakes, you know, and uh, war, you know crimes yeah. in the 20th century, such as the invasion of Iraq um, and also the invasion of Afghanistan. Then we had the invasion of Libya, and then we had the ongoing. Uh, um, crisis in Syria, where all the very nation, many nations came together hmm. to try and uh, oust Assad, um, who has obviously got his own political issues and, and his political wrongdoings and has committed many crimes himself. But the, the fact of the matter is, is that they tried to foment discord within that country for yeah. a political gain. Um, instead of trying to abate the flames of war, they were trying to incite them. And I think that this is... Um, this is also reflected in the fact that a lot of people are now raising the issue as to whether Israel is trying to shift the people out of Gaza to create a second Suez Canal, what's called the Ben-Gurion Canal, uh, through uh, near the Gaza Strip. And this is very interesting because if we go to the next slide, which you're already on, that's great. This is from News of the World, and this is, a set, this is cited in the uh, Al-Fazl magazine of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in November 1945. And this is fr from the News of the World at the time, which mm. was issued in Jerusalem. And it says, with the creation of the Jewish state in Palestine, Britain will have all bases which it needs and with the help of which it can be a guardian of the Suez Canal. In this situation, Palestine could become another British colony. Contrary to this, if they follow the 1939 white paper, then in this situation, the Jews will bind their future with the future of the Arabs, and they'll promote the removal of the British from the Middle East and India. Not only have the people of the United States and Britain been misled over the issue of Palestine, but so have the responsible officers about the, re about the relocation of every Jew from Europe into the deserts of Palestine. The recommendation at the end is President Truman ought to remove the restrictions over the entry of Jews into America. Every allied country ought to permit the entry of Jews according to their capacity. So there was an awareness amongst the um, journalistic classes of the time yeah. that um, that this nation would become an actual fact, a could become a guardian of the Suez Canal. Right. Um, so... This, in actual fact, was the point of Israel. Mm. And this continues to be the point of Israel. Mm. At the moment, they're trying to break up the Iranian power in the region, um, and they're trying to keep the uh, Saudis... Um, this is what the part of the movement was to do the Abraham Accords, to normalize relations with Saudi Arabia, yeah. to normalize relations with Qatar, with the UAE. Um, and the idea is to create an alliance between majority Muslim world and Israel right. against Iran. Right. Okay. We're not Shia. We're not even Sunni in the typical sense of the word. Yeah. Okay. So we don't have a uh, we don't have a, a horse in that fight, as it mm. were. But our interest is much deeper than that, which is that we want to see the unity of the Muslim nation. Yeah. We want to see the fact that the Muslims come together, mm -hmm. and this is the message that the um, current Khalifa of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, who has reiterated the words of the second Khalifa in his latest sermon, has said that. If the Muslims do not unite as one, then they risk being destroyed one by one. And right. this is what we saw, you know, over the last 30 years, we've seen the fall of Saddam Hussein. We've seen the fall of Gaddafi. We've seen them try to oust Bashar al-Assad. Yeah. We've seen successive Muslim governments and leaders and countries topple mm. because one, they don't themselves practice justice. Mm. And secondly, they're not united in their own interests and in, yeah. and in terms of their own moral standing as well. Yeah. So we come on to now the fundamental motivation of um, the creation of the state of Israel. 
Okay, why did they inflate artificially the immigration numbers from 13 to 33%? Why did they then give more than 50% of the land to 33% of the population hmm. with the majority of the agriculture, with the majority of the Jewish businesses in that area, with a minority of the Arabs having their own businesses in their in their possession of the land? Why did they train the Irgun and the Haganah and stand by while they went and seized more than the land that they had been originally partitioned to? Um, and the second Khalif outlines it for us. He says that day was the Holy Quran and the Hadith warned about centuries before that day about which the Old and the New Testament warned about that day, which was described to be particularly painful and dreadful for the Muslims as seems has finally arrived. The Jews are again being settled in Palestine. The United States and Russia who are preparing to wipe out each other seem to be strange bedfellows on this issue. And the strange thing is that they were also united over the issue of Kashmir. They were both in favor of the Indian Union, and now they are both in favor of the Jews over the Palestine issue. Why is there a unity over these issues? Why do these two enemies become united against the Muslims? There can be many reasons for this. However, one reason may be more apt, which is also in our favor. That is that they both, both may visualize their plans being ruined with the progress of Islam. This is akin to the reaction of dogs that gather together when they smell the presence of a lion. Maybe this is the way they gather together. Maybe both of them, with their foresight, sense the signs of the progress of Islam. Maybe the lion of Islam, which appears sleeping to our eyes, is moving towards wakefulness. Maybe a light shiver in its mane, invisible to its friends, is very apparent to the enemy. If this is the case, then the dangerous situation is pointing towards the progress in the future. However, side by side, the huge responsibility on the shoulders of the Muslims is also being presented to them. Right. So what do you make of that? Very powerful. I mean, what he's saying is, is that the, the Islam is the dominant force, the dominant moral, spiritual, unifying political force, even in sense of uh, you know, nations of of similar belief set mm. uh, coming together uh, in the world, and and the people who are non-Muslims, the non-Muslim nations, sense this, mm. and they sense that the greatest threat to their hegemony in the world mm. is the Islamic threat. Mm. And it's a strange thing because you know, after capitalism versus communism, nineteen eighty nine, then nineteen ninety one, it collapsed um, completely. Yeah, w what happened? It's just immediate. Immediately, just immediate. Immediately, the US and the Western system immediately Pivots. switched onto Islam. Hmm. It switched onto demonizing Muslims. It switched onto uh, portraying Muslims as the enemy and invading them. You had immediately, you had the Gulf crisis. And it's incredible the, hypocrisy. The first, the first Iraq war. During, during the Cold War, they had, um, they had supported many of these dictators in Muslim world, in the yeah. Muslim world and in Muslim countries. Yeah. Uh, because for the very fact that they knew that Islam was ideologically um, uh, a bulwark against the invasion of communist atheism. Yeah. And they had to prop up those Muslim governments as much as they could against the communists that the communists wouldn't have any kind of uh, inroads into that region because that'd be disastrous on an energy level, right? Yeah. If, if you have that. So having supported them for so long, they then suddenly turned against them and one by one, they were all taken out. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So they used the Muslim nations. They kept them on side, and then they then they deposed them if they started to get a bit too, uh, you know, uh, to stand up uh, in any way whatsoever to the West. Yeah. But you're right. It's it's a it's an immediate pivot, which shows that they know where the real threat is. And even today, you see this actually in in much of the um, the culture wars. Islam is the enemy, yeah. and you know there is extremism amongst the Muslims, and there are certain things which we we certainly don't like amongst the Muslims, and we believe they're not representative of true Islam, and we we preach against them, we talk against them. Yeah. But underlying it, there is a sense, there is a reality that there is a power of Islam because it is, it is a, there is a belief set. It has unified beliefs, morals. It has, 
you know, policies, on politics, on economics. It has a totalizing aspect, essentially, because it reforms you from the from the individual soul to the nation, if yeah. you follow it properly. Yeah. So it is it is something which can crush in, a, in an ideological sense, anything that comes before it. Yeah, well, it binds Muslims together into, uh, uh, you know, because of the uh, foundation of which it lays, which is universal in its aspect, yeah. which it, it creates a framework for people to understand their place in the world mm. um, and binds them to other people in the world beyond the boundaries of ethnicity and nationhood. Right, it, because it's open to all. <laughs> because it's open to all. And it's a message for all mankind. Yeah in actual fact um, becomes a threat mm. to those or, or perceived as a threat mm. um, to those who wish to continually divide people. Mm. You see a, a system which brings people together and unites them um, and shows that they have more in common that they have differences uh, is always going to be a threat to those who seek to, to conquer through dividing people, divide right. and conquer, which is the modus operandi uh, of many nations in the world and powers in the world. And so that's how we came to this moment, to this tragic moment, yeah. is that the Christian Zionists recognize, the Christians recognize that Islam is the threat. Yeah, I mean, listen to that genocidal maniac, Yeah, right? Saying that he pivoted immediately, we have to make car guards into a parking lot. He's, and then he immediately goes into, because Islam is a threat and they all have your head off, which is total nonsense. Yeah. In fact, he's the one who's calling people's heads to parole yeah. because of the difference in belief. And he's the one who wants it to happen so that Jesus comes down and kills all the Jews. Mm. You know, ultimately he has a fanatical genocidal mindset because he has a fanatical and a genocidal perspective um, view of God. Yeah. He thinks God is a genocidal maniac, mm. right? And so he follows God. Yeah. Right? He thinks God's going to come down and say the sword or belief, Christianity, or you're going to get your head chopped off and thrown in hell mm. forever. So he believes God is a genocidal maniac. Mm. So he follows the ways of his God. And as we covered in the William Lane Craig video, we won't go over it in depth. You know, actually the Christian conception of God is one who has never forgiven any sin. Yeah. And the Jewish conception of God, it seems, you know, for, well, for 2000 years, let's be honest, has been that, you know, no one else is uh, is chosen by God. Yeah. And unfortunately, the contemporary... 3,300. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, no, no, but... <clears throat> oh, 2000 years since yes, Jesus. Since, since Correct. Many of them accepted Jesus, yes, right? Exactly, yes, but the ones exactly. who didn't. Yes, exactly. Um, and, and the contemporary Sunni and Shia beliefs of uh, or Sunni and Shia Muslims is again that, that God is, is someone who would send uh, a Messiah and a Mahdi that would actually go around killing people. So you're completely right that the conception one has of God informs human actions, yeah. right? And so, you know, in, in, in summary, this is, this is how we got to this tragic moment. Yeah. The Christians uh, geopolitically knew that Islam is a political threat. Religiously, they knew that Islam is a, is a religious threat. The religious amongst them wanted to expedite the advent of the Messiah so that the Jews and the Muslims would be wiped out. The Jews, the religious ones amongst them, wanted to do this same. They want to bring the, 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 their Messiah down so that they can kill, you know, everyone else. Yeah. And unfortunately the, uh, the contemporary non-Ahmadi Muslims have similar beliefs just on a different flavor. Actually the Ahmadi Muslims, the Ahmadi Muslim community to which we belong is the only one that actually has a, has a view of this is that it's as reasonable and peaceful and doesn't, <laughs> you know, make your hair stand on end. <laughs> Which is that the second coming of the Messiah is not a literal one where Jesus flies down, but is someone that came in the spirit and power of Jesus. Uh, and in the same way that Jesus was a, a Messiah to the Jews in the 14th century after Moses, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, was the Messiah to the Muslims. Uh, well, actually, he was the, it's more accurate in a way to say he's the Mahdi for the Muslims, the mm -hmm. Imam Mahdi. But to the rest of the world, he was the promised Messiah Correct. to bring them into the fold of Islam, which is universalist, Yes, which isn't that one people are the 
chosen people. We've all been chosen by God. All of us have had prophets, but now the time has come in the seventh century for uh, onwards for humanity to unite under the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, who is in actuality the only prophet that has ever come in religious history and has said that actually my message is for all people. Yeah. So true Islam is something which can conquer all of the hates that we see and which actually vanquishes all of these false messianic beliefs which have led in this age, in this messianic age, to enormous bloodshed and to the, the tragedy ultimately which is being shown on our mobile phones and our TV screens today. Yeah. So I hope you enjoyed that. Please do subscribe to our channel. Comment what you think about these issues. How do you think this is going to be resolved? And what do you think are the roots of this? Are we right? Are we wrong? We'll see you in the comments. Peace be upon you.